I have never seen. Uh, basically, there hasn't been a major change in MMT. There hasn't been a criticism which has really landed. And I'm wondering at what point did MMT stabilize? Was there ever a point where there was like a major outside criticism that really changed it? Or did Warren Mosor come in where it was just 100% solid right then and there? Like, it just seems invulnerable. You know, there's all of these criticisms, but none of them seem to land. It, it just seems to be very solid. At what point did it like officially sort of, you know, this is MNT, this came together. And then at that point, were there any major changes made? You know, what's the history, I guess, the timeline of that from that point of view? Um, no, none of the criticisms has ever held up. I, I can say that flatly, never had any influence. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with one of the original developers of modern money theory, L. Randall Ray. Today we talk briefly about the differences between the words sufficient and necessary and the concept of desired net savings. The heart of our conversation, however, is in two parts. The second is an overview of MMT from the Kansas City point of view, as documented in Dr. Ray's new paper, The Kansas City Approach to Modern Money Theory, a link to which, along with many other resources, can be found in the show notes for both parts one and two. The Kansas City version of MMT differs in one important way from the broader version as agreed upon by all its original developers, and that is the influence and inspiration of Hyman Minsky and the importance of his concept of financial fragility. Before that, though, the first part is on the true meaning of the word productivity. This was in response to strong criticism I received regarding the job guarantee and more specifically to the April 2018 Levy paper called Public Service Employment, A Path to Full Employment, of which Dr. Ray is a co-author. Before I go on, I want to be clear. These are my own words, not Dr. Ray's and not MMT's. It's my best interpretation of what I learned in my preparation for and conversation with Dr. Ray. Although I'm confident I'm much closer than I was before talking with him, I'm not pretending to be an expert or that what I'm about to say is perfect MMT. Like you, I have more to learn. 
I'm also obviously taking the knowledge of MMT and applying my own progressive values to it. That said, I'd like to take a step back and start with an analogy. Something cannot be removed from a container until something is first put into that container. A leakage from the economy cannot happen until something is first injected into the economy. The only institutions that can make injections are commercial banks and the central government. Savings, therefore, cannot cause bank lending, and taxes cannot finance government spending. Regarding productivity and the job guarantee, in a similar way, jobs can create skills, but skills cannot create jobs. As Dr. Ray explains, washing my own dishes is not considered to be officially productive, but paying someone else to do it is. Why? Because they were paid and I wasn't. In other words, productivity as officially measured is substantially a reflection of not the production itself, but how much workers were paid in exchange for it. Despite consistently increasing output, wages have remained stagnant since around 1970, nearly half a century. Have workers really been less and less productive, or have they been more and more screwed? Currently, the only thing that's considered officially productive is what makes somebody else richer. Who, by the way, is someone that seems to never be me? Productivity is essentially equated to profit because business owners are essentially the only ones who get to decide who is paid, what they will be paid for, and how much to pay them. Instead of only paying people for making some business owners profit, perhaps we can also start paying people for making our world a better place, for helping other people, for cleaning our environment, for holding the hand of the dying, for recording the history of the old, for helping a child with homework or a teacher in the classroom or a youth soccer coach on the field. Wages are not created by productivity. Productivity is created by wages. How do you increase productivity? By paying workers more, by paying them at all. We don't have to measure productivity with maths and models. We don't have to equate productivity with only profit, and we definitely don't have to leave these decisions and definitions only to business owners. We can redefine productivity to whatever we want it to be, and then we can start paying people to do it. demonstrates really convincingly that things have really changed to make the tax system uh, even more pro-cyclical than it used to be. Oh, I and, said counter-cyclical, and, they're pro-cyclical. Well, pro, yeah, because 
in a boom, tax revenue goes up. Right. Yeah. And then it, yeah. And uh, spending has become less countercyclical, um, which it, and so this is bad, very bad for stability of the economy. So right. it's contributing a lot to the instability that we see. And their scaremongering makes that even worse, obviously. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Um, so I'd like to, before we get to the Kansas City, I have a few specific sort of unrelated questions. Um, and then we'll spend the rest of our time uh, on Kansas City MMT. Yep. Okay. Okay, great. Um, in your report on the front, uh, I believe it was part three. Uh, I'll put links to all this stuff. You say the following. You say our logical argument, and this is in response to Anne Mayhew's, I'm pretty sure, her uh article, her paper in the journal that you were referring to, you say, our logical argument is that from inception, a tax or similar obligation is sufficient to create demand for the currency. We've always argued that it may not be a necessary condition. Can you describe the difference? I I do not understand the difference between sufficient and necessary. Okay. Yeah. This is a a, a really common uh, trope in economics the difference between necessary and sufficient. So uh, sufficient means that I know that if I put a tax liability on the population and that I can enforce that with jail time or you know whatever the penalty is, that will create a demand for the currency. Okay, so that is, a, it's a sufficient condition. Okay. Now, is it a necessary condition? Necess- could I come up with some other explanation for oh. why people would want currency? If I can, let's say the greater fool theory. Let's let's say that I that I could come up with a convincing greater fool theory that you'll accept it because you think there's someone even dumber than you mm-hmm. who will accept a paper currency that has no obvious commodity value. If, you know, I can come up with a good argument as to why the greater fool theory could drive a currency, then I could say the tax is not necessary. Now, no one has come up with an alternative explanation. Okay. So, so far, we could say that as far as we know, taxes are a sufficient condition and a necessary condition. But I don't need to make that argument. You know, I, I don't have to. You mean argue. the latter part of it? You mean the necessary yeah, the, the part? The necessary part. In order to make the MMT case, I don't have to prove there's never been a currency out there that didn't have a tax behind it or obligation behind it. That there have been currencies that existed with no obligations at all. But and taxation so- by itself definitely works. Yes. That, well, we know that. <laughs> I say well, that's, we, that's what you mean by sufficient. That that taxation yes. is that definitely works. That is a sufficient. Yes. There are yep. other ways to do it, possibly. Okay. Yep. All right. That helps. Can, Thank you. I can leave open the possibility. I'll let them prove it. Let somebody come up with one. The greater fool theory for me is not convincing at all. I think right. it's you a call it, I like how you call it the PT Barnum. I yeah. think the PT Barnum greater fool theory. Um, okay. Great. That's fine. Uh, you say the following in your paper, government as an employer of last resort, full employment without inflation, which I think is actually, or I really enjoyed that paper, specifically with the uh, the like 
all of the skepticism and then how you would address it. I thought that part was particularly insightful. You say the following. You say, existence of involuntary unemployed workers is de facto evidence that des desired net saving exceeds actual net saving. That means that the government can safely increase its deficit spending, lowering involuntary unemployment to satisfy the excess desired net saving of the population. Like helicopter money doesn't apply to to monetary policy because you have to, you know, they can only exchange assets. They can't give people new net financial assets like the issuer can, you know, the Congress can. But people always want more money and you're not, doesn't seem like you're talking about monetary policy here. So I don't understand really what desired net saving is. Can you, can you clarify that? Yeah. So it, it depends on your, your income. So let's say that uh, people desire to save less than they are saving. Well, that's an easy thing to resolve because you start spending more and saving less. And what would happen? The economy would grow faster and people would get more jobs. Oh, so, this is not giving money directly to people. This is just putting money into the economy, which influences people based on the percentage of their own income that they want to save. Yeah. So here, I'm not talking about any government policy, but let's just say that people got up tomorrow morning and they said, you know, I'm, I have greater saving net saving than uh, what I want, I'll go shopping, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that's going to stimulate the economy and that's going to create some employment. But at any point in time, you know, as sort of our analytical device, we must be in equilibrium or people would have done something different. So whatever they've done, we presume that they've done what they want to do you know, given the caveat that, you know, many people have lost their job, many people are uncertain about the future. And so we have to, you know, hold all of that constant. They're doing what they want to do, or they would have done something different. So that is how we define a point of equilibrium. Okay. Um, so we have some amount of saving going on, and, and it's relatively high right now for a variety of reasons, right? You, you can't go to the restaurants and so on. But if people decided, hey, my saving is too high, the uh, spending would go up. Right. So given desired saving, we, we've ended up with unemployment. So what can the government do? Desired saving is probably higher than what people are actually doing. And the government can spend more. And if tax revenue doesn't rise... Uh, it's equal to the government spending, then actual saving is going to go up. You know, that's the, the sectoral balance identity. If the government's spending is greater than taxes, it must mean uh, at least one of the other sectors, domestic or foreign, will be uh, uh, having an increase of income greater than their increase of spending which is what we define saving to be. Okay. So the saving would, would go up. Now, what happens if uh, the government starts spending more, but the private sector actually doesn't want to save more? Well, that, that'll be perfectly fine. What will happen then is that 
the private sector's spending will go up too, and tax revenue will go up, and we will end up with no increase of the budget deficit because the private sector's desired saving actually wasn't higher. Right. Right. So uh, it's, you know, it's a self-correcting thing. The budget deficit will always be the right size uh, to be equal to the net saving desire of the other two sectors. Understood. Okay. All right. So one last thing, and then we'll get to Kansas City, and that is uh, you are an author of the uh, April 2018 uh, job guarantee paper, you and Stephanie and Scott and Pavlina and Dantas. I don't know the first name. Um, Flavia. Okay, Flavia. I got a serious piece of skepticism, criticism about it. You're an author of it, so I'm passing it to you, and I'd just like to get your response, and then we'll move on. Uh, two things about it. Number one. I'm just going to, this is a quote of what he said after reading just that paper. Uh, He says, it never talks about whether the jobs are productive, but just assumes that they will be. If you put people into unproductive jobs, it doesn't help the economy and is demoralizing to the people and discredits the program. But a guarantee means that you will have to, no, yet means that you will have to hire whether the job and the person are productive or not. That's one half of it. And I'm going to give you the other half of it, which is unrelated. And you can just address them both. The other half of it is there's a, there was a job guarantee in Egypt. That job guarantee in Egypt had two conditions, which were, as far as I'm concerned, to make it just not what we would consider a job guarantee at all, except in name. Number one is that their wage was 200% higher than the private sector. And number two was that they only accepted people with secondary degrees, so they're not hiring off of the bottom. And yet this person said, Job guarantees have a terrible history in other countries such as Egypt, where which they never talk about. I said these things uh, about what the Egyptian job guarantee was and that it was totally different. And so I didn't think that it that was applicable. And he responded that the JG was problematic in the Egyptian case, which did have its own currency, and they failed to address it and just dismiss it as irrelevant. And I see that it's irresponsible by scientific standards. So I'm just putting that out there. And can you just respond to that? both of those pieces, uh, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's sort of funny. Um, economists have no idea what they mean when they use the word productive. I mean, no idea whatsoever. It's a very slippery thing. If I wash my own dishes, that does not show up in GDP. That is not, is not considered productive. If I hire you to wash my dishes, it's productive and it will show up in GDP. So GDP will be higher. Now, if we forget the economics and look at it, we would say, well, it was productive. The dishes got cleaned. <laughs> you know, that seems pretty important. Uh, good cleanliness. And we know that, you know, that has been the major revolution that reduces disease. Uh, so how does it get counted in GDP? Well, if I paid you a dollar an hour, it gets counted in GDP as, you know, a dollar if it took you an hour. If I paid you $100, it gets counted in GDP as 
$100. Simple. I mean, that's it. How can I make your work more productive? Pay you more. Um, That's actually, you reminded me of something. I don't recall if it was that paper or a different one, which was work. No, skills don't create work. Work creates skills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have lots of skills (laughs) that you have a hard time marketing. Mm -hmm. And if you can't market them, they're not productive. Right. Uh, But, you know, so getting back to this, we're, you know, 80, 85% service sector economy and services. How do you value services? Hmm. By the pay. <laughs> and the, the argument always is, well, the service sector is less productive than manufacturing. Well, why is that true? <laughs> because the pay is lower. Are, the low paying jobs are concentrated in the service sector. Now, that's not the only place. There also are sweatshops. And there also is agricultural labor that are very low paid. But the majority of low paid jobs are in the service sector. You know, and ironically, a huge percentage of those disappeared because of the pandemic. And so labor productivity and wages on average have been going up. (laughs) And so people say, wow, that's great. We're becoming more productive. Why are we, we becoming more productive? Because we eliminated millions and millions of low-paid jobs. We're because people, people. You know, people can't go to restaurants. Right. So, um, the, you know, in engineering, you know, you could get a, a measure of productivity that makes some kind of sense, right? So you've got a one machine can produce 50 widgets an hour. And the other machine has a throughput of only 25. You know, we can get a pretty precise measure of the productivity. But we're we're talking about the economy, and you know, we're we're measuring GDP in uh, nominal. You know, the price times the quantity. And then I I know that we will do an adjustment to get real GDP. Uh, but we do that by using some kind of a deflator for the whole economy. We apply that deflator to the uh, output. You know, it becomes extremely hazy, this concept of what productivity is. And if you look at the course of the business cycle, if we ever recover and we start expanding, labor productivity is going to go up a lot. Now, That always happens uh, in in an expansion. Why? Well, it's because the the workers uh, who are employed um, will be more active. You know, they're going to work faster. They're going to work harder uh, because the demand for the output is greater. When a recession comes, productivity goes down. And the reason is because firms don't lay off all the people they could lay off because it's too hard to rehire them back. So unless unless a, a downturn is really prolonged, they'll keep extra workers on the job and the workers will work less hard, right. uh, longer breaks. Uh, so pro- measured productivity goes down. And that's why you know, productivity uh, varies month by month, quarter by quarter. But it, it, it's all because of you know, these fairly arbitrary things that actually has nothing to do with innovation and technological advance and investing in new plant and equipment. 
all of that takes a long time. Uh, but everyone focuses on the quarterly productivity data, which actually doesn't tell you anything about sort of the engineering productivity, which is what everyone thinks it means. Mm-hmm. So everyone celebrates, oh, the measure of labor productivity went up this quarter. Wow, that's great. It must be because firms are being very innovative and putting in new technology and so on and so on. But actually, it's just because the workers are working a bit harder because mm-hmm. demand for the output has gone up and the firms can sell more stuff. Um, and so the output will go up. And so I always, I, I think it's just so funny that people focus on on the very short-term movements of productivity that tell you nothing important. What really matters is productivity over the long term. And even that is largely driven by demand, not by innovation, not by investment. If demand is growing rapidly, firms have more incentive to put in more machinery. And if wages are growing, they have incentive to replace workers with machinery. If wages are not growing, if they're stagnant like they've been more or less since 1970, there's not much incentive to invest, and it's there's not much incentive to innovate. So de- demand, in in my argument, demand drives productivity both in the short run for the reasons I was talking about, but also in the long run. So if what if we uh, we actually do discuss in the uh, that uh, policy brief on the job guarantee, we discuss the kinds of jobs you can do. So Pavlina has done the most work on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she divides them into care for people, care for communities, and care for the environment. Okay, if we are improving people's lives, those jobs are productive. Of course. Okay, in a social sense. But you can't boil uh, it down to math and models as easily as this person seems to want to do that. Right. And, um, you know, if we're paying the job guarantee workers seven fifty an hour and we're valuing their output at seven fifty an hour, that's going to be a low productivity job. If we pay them $15 uh, an hour, we're going to be valuing that at a double the productivity. Now, GDP is a is very complexly measured. You know, ideally, if we're studying a capitalist economy, it's an MCM prime economy. It's a for-profit economy. What you want to measure to capture that would be marketed stuff. You know, only if it's sold, right? You would want to include it in GDP, and that's the majority of what's in GDP. But there's a lot of imputed stuff too that is not marketed, that is not bought and sold. In both the GDP and in our measures of inflation, we have imputed elements like homeowners living in their own homes. There's no marketing going on, okay? But we will impute a value, consumption services, you're consuming a home, Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll, we can include that in our measures, but it's not marketed. So it, in some sense, it's good to do that because, you know, that is productive in the generic sense of that term, even though there's no market transaction at all. On the other hand, we're including things that are not MCM prime. 
So it's not a good measure of capitalist activities that uh, in a capitalist economy or you know, what it's all about. Okay. Right. right. Yep. So uh, I, if, if job guarantee workers are improving people's lives, improving the life of the community and helping to save the environment, I would say all of those are productive in the generic sense of the term and in the important sense of the term as far as uh, human survival. Okay. okay, and the other one, the... And I want to I want to say the, the, the final yeah. sense of what he said again, which was to fail to address this and just dismiss it as irrelevant is irresponsible by scientific standards. So uh, people do, and uh, I mean, it's perfectly legitimate to describe other kinds of programs as job guarantees. The MMT job guarantee is very specific. First, it's universal. It is targeted to anyone who wants a job uh, to work in the program. So it would not be targeted only to people with secondary degrees. The MMT job guarantee proposed by Warren, Bill, and me is all similar to Hyman Minsky's proposal. There's a single wage. Okay, and so our MMT version of the job guarantee has a single wage. And we do that uh, for reasons related to MMT, for valuing the currency. Uh, I won't go into that more right now. We can if you want. No, uh, no, no. But, so just the idea for, that, that not considering the Egyptian guarantee, despite these major differences, that is that relevant? at all, should that have been considered at all? Uh, it, see, in our proposal, saying you're setting the wage at 200% of the private sector wage would be a nonsensical statement because it's impossible. <laughs> Wherever you set our job guarantee wage will be the lowest wage in the economy. There will be no wages below that. So it's a nonsensical, you couldn't do it. But the idea that a wage being above the current, I think, let's, let's put a hard number on it, forget the percentage, that, that at the time it was 200%. So it was a hard number, but it was above the market wage, substantially above the market wage at the time. Right. But since most people couldn't qualify for the program, there's no reason why the wage for um, people who didn't graduate uh, to go up at all. It might go up a little bit, but it's not going to go up very much. With a universal job guarantee, and you let's say that we set the um, the program wage at two hundred percent of the current minimum wage, all wages will go up. Okay. So uh, it would have a big impact on uh, all the wages throughout the economy. What I'm saying is, the one in Egypt will not, because you're targeting it only to people with secondary degrees. So, now, not, so not considering the Egypt as part of the evident body of evidence to analyze the MMT job guarantee, seemed, it seems reasonable to exclude that as part of the evidence. Would that be correct? Right. It, it, it's nothing like ours. Got it. Now, we do, do advocate uh, uh, doubling it. Yes, we do. So, but, that's uh, a, but we define that as the minimum dignity, the minimum, you know. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's clear. 
Okay, so uh, unless there's just something else you wanted to say about that, let's. What is MMT from the Kansas City point of view? So, um, uh, I would just say to to start off, uh, institutionalism. Um, I don't know if you specifically mentioned that in the paper, but institutionalism uh, seems to be the very first part of it. Where, like I believe in the book, in the textbook, you say you the book says that you know, first and foremost is a realistic analysis of how the system actually works. And I believe that that is the institutional element of it. And I, I, as I see it, that that's sort of where it all begins. I mean, I guess chartalism is also sort of the beginning as well. But um, so I just wanted to say that to begin with. And uh, please. Okay. Um, I think in the paper, there are nine elements Maybe 10. So I'll start off with um, chartalism or state money. Uh, I had already written about that in my dissertation in 1990 book. I had read uh, Knapp and I had um, uh, dabbled a bit in uh, the Babylonian um, uh, monetary system. Um, Keynes had written about this in the treaties and in a bunch of papers that were collected in his collected works. Um, So I had read that. And uh, two guys, Heinzone and Steiger, had written this attack on the barter story that we talked about earlier and came up with a story that was sort of consistent with uh, a lot of what Keynes wrote. Um, It was a private property approach to money as an alternative. And I, I was intrigued by that. So I included all that in the 1990 book. When I was writing the 98 book, um, so this is after hearing Warren talking about taxes drive money. This was I, the one that Warren uh, supported you with. Yes. Uh, I revisited all of that stuff. My um, In my first book, I w- was doing endogenous money. So the main focus of the book was on the private part of the monetary system, not on the government part. So the second book I saw as uh, going back and looking at the government part mostly, uh, because I'd already d- done the private part, the endogenous money and all that in the first book. By 1998... I had discovered uh, A. Mitchell Innes. I think it could have come uh, from Steiger, but I don't remember anymore. And uh, we had found this 1913 article by Innes that um, laid out the state money. His paper begins with a statement of the barter story. He goes through it step by step by step, and it says, all of this is false hmm. and then starts presenting uh, evidence of um, uh, money in the, in say the medie- medieval period. Oh, he even talks about the clay tablets of Mesopotamia. And then he talks about the American experience. Um, and so in the, the 98 book, I present that. And meanwhile, Matt Forstatter had been looking at taxes drive money in Africa. I found writings on the 
really famous uh, Yap Island uh, stone wheel, supposedly money, these huge stone wheels that would take four or five guys to lift, supposedly mm. were a form of currency. Um, I looked at colonial monies in America, the different experience of the North and the South in the Civil War. Matt also had brought in Hava Lerner and his um, paper on uh, state money. We had, uh, uh, I knew of Goodhart's name. Uh, he's, a, he's a famous money and banking uh, professor in England. But he, in 97, had written a very good paper. There are several versions. I think maybe the very first draft was 96 on the two views of money, the metalist view, which is sort of the commodity money, neoclassical, and the chartalist view. And then finally, um, when Godley had come to the Levy Institute. And so while I was writing my book, I was sharing chapters with him. And he had already been warning about the euro as early as 1992. Mm -hmm. So we also were incorporating in this uh, euro proposal, you know, examining it from the point of view of a state money approach and arguing that it was going to be a disaster. Mm -hmm. So bringing all those things together, the one nation, one currency rule that uh, you find as far back as you go to Mesopotamian times and across the world today with the one huge exception of the euro, this has always been the case. And as Goodhart argued, this cannot be a coincidence. You know, you can't find that there's almost no exceptions to this. Uh, that couldn't be a coincidence. There has to be a reason why every new nation chooses its own currency. Um, so anyway, that's the chartalism uh, state money approach. The new nation chooses a money of account, issues a currency denominated in that money of account. It might issue other debts too, like bonds in that money of account and imposes obligations, mm -hmm. fees, fines, tribute, tithes, or taxes. Today, it's mostly taxes. But all those others have also been used to drive currency. Okay. So that's the first part. This is accepted by all versions of MMT. You know, this is the foundation of right. what a sovereign currency is. Right. The second thing is to then link that to my earlier book. Okay, so that explains the currency. But what about banks? So that's yeah. basically state money in vertical. Yes. Yep. So how do we then link that to uh, the private money, which, of course, is 99.9% .9 of the monetary system? Mm -hmm. The, you know, it's the, the government's money is the foundation of the financial system. But most of the financial system uh, is not using uh, currency. Uh, they, they hold bonds as collateral. Uh, and they use reserves, which are just deposits at the central bank, for net clearing. But most payments don't involve directly the state's money. So how do we explain the private part? And so for that, we look at um, 
the endogenous money story that I'd written about in 90. We look at the monetary circuit approach, which is the the Franco-Italian approach to money. And we look at credit money. So the second discovery was a paper by Ennis in 1914. It was his follow-up paper to the 1913 article. And uh, it more clearly focused on uh, the credit money part of the story. And we also discovered that Keynes had reviewed uh, Innes' 1913 article in Keynes's own journal, the Economic Journal, which was one of the top journals at the time. He had reviewed Innes in 1913, and shortly after that had gone through his period that he called his Babylonian madness. So Innes played a role. I I can't say that Innes was the cause of it, but he played a role in getting Keynes interested in the origins of money. Hmm. And that is why Keynes wrote all this stuff and then included the state money theory in his treaties. Um, so anyway, putting uh, these all together and um, finding the weaknesses. So I'll say one big difference between MMT and the circuit approach of the French and Italians and the endogenous money approach of the horizontalists that follow Basil Moore is that um, they begin with the private money and have virtually no discussion of the government's money, which we see as the foundation Mm -hmm. of the monetary system. So what we do is start with state money, but then we explain that, uh, you know, just as the government can uh, create money out of thin air and can't run out, uh, banks also create money and can't run out. Uh, there's there's no limit to their ability to create more bank money. And then we also can, you know, move into the shadow banking sector. I wrote about it in my first book. We called it non-bank banks. We didn't have a, another terminology for it. Mm-hmm. Paul McCulley comes along later and names them shadow banks, mm-hmm. you know, which was nice. And so we um, also need to write about the shadow banking sector and how all of this private creation of credits and debits, uh, this pyramid of liabilities, all rests on the foundation of the state's money. They're all denominated in a state money of account. They use the state's money for net clearing. And, uh, well, anyway, that's that's enough on that. (laughs) The, you, go, uh, you you have a, a whole pa- I have a whole paper where you go quite in depth on the state theory. It's I think it's called the state theory of money to MMT or something to that effect. Probably <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you do. I'll link to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then um, the the third element is looking in more detail on the nature of money. So as I said, I had studied institutional economics. Dudley Dillard was one of the great institutionalists. And he said, money itself is an institution. Money cannot be a thing. It cannot be a commodity. 
money is an institution. Institutionalists interpret uh, institutions as being um, sort of habits of behavior, uh, follow rules and uh, maybe laws. And so we followed that, but institutions never had gone into it in great depth. Uh, I uh, came to know uh, Jeff Ingham uh, by the late 90s, I think, certainly by the year 2000, who had gone deeper into what is this relationship. Okay, well, one thing about it is it's a credit and debt relationship. You know, a commodity money, there's no relationship. You've, you've got a commodity, you, maybe it's gold, you exchange it for the banana you want. There's no lasting relationship at all. There's no social relationship. But with credits and debts, there are social relationships. There's a creditor and there's a debtor. And that means something, right? You've got a continuing relationship between those. So we see uh, the credit-debit relationship. Uh, at some point, writing the, the 98 book, I came across the work of uh, Grierson. Grierson was the most famous authority on coins uh, at Cambridge. When he died, he left his huge coin collection to Cambridge. Mm. I got to see some of it on one of my visits. Anyway, he had a hypothesis about the origins of money. And I told you I had, had, Keynes noticed this strange thing, which is that all of the early money units were measured in grain, first wheat, and then barley. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a strange thing. Why? Because, you know, everyone has a fascination with gold, but it wasn't gold. It was grain. So anyway, uh, Grierson uh, hypothesized that money grew out of fair guilt. Now, I knew something about fair guilt because I studied tribal society. Uh, just to be really brief. It comes out of the justice system. So it does not come out of exchange. Mm. It, it comes out of injuries and fines that are paid to the victims. So if I injure somebody in your family, my family is responsible for uh, redemption, mm-hmm. uh, for payments made to your family these payments in tribal society are in kind and they are socially dictated. So for every different kind of transgression, like if I cut off your arm, there's one thing, maybe a goat has to be paid. If I cut off your beard, a horse has to be paid and so on. So we have, we have the records of this. Not only, you know, have we come into tribal, into contact with tribal society, you know, in the 203, last 200, 300 years, But the Romans kept track when they studied German tribal society, uh, which is where the term Vergeld comes from, from Germany. I believe this is related to your idea of money is more related to preventing blood feuds. That's right. The Hatfields and McCoys in in America. So you have to make the payment to to prevent a blood feud from uh, uh, getting started. And the payment is made to the victims. Now, money is very different because the payments are made to the authorities. 
So Grierson had to speculate, how did we transition from a system where payments are made to victims to a system where you redeem yourself by paying the authority? You get a speeding ticket uh, and you have to pay a fine to the authorities. A lot of uh, other kinds of crimes, you pay fines. Um, and then, of course, uh, we also have other kinds of punishment. You redeem yourself, you pay your debt to society by serving 10 years in prison. Well, it turns out that um, uh, Ennis had written a book on this hmm. called Martyrdom in Our Times. And uh, we got hold of that. Stephanie found it when she went to uh, London and went to, through the British Library. And so he, he laid all this out, you know, and it's not quite as explicit as um, we would have liked it to have been. But he saw the link uh, that these debts, debt is very common in all human societies. The notion of indebtedness, the notion of redemption is common. And of course, it's also very tied up with religion and almost all of our terms uh, that we apply to the financial system came out of religion. Margaret Atwood has a great book where she goes through all this and shows the, the etymology of the terms that we use that came from religion, uh, which goes back to Mesopotamia and the early temples and the work of Michael Hudson demonstrating that uh, money probably is created in the temples and so what Grierson is hypothesizing is that the first authorities were religious authorities. And maybe in the beginning, they just demanded that part of the payment uh, went to the authorities and part to the victims. And gradually over time, the authorities take it all. The vi victims don't get anything. And so that is why our system of justice, according to uh, Ennis, gets harsher and harsher and harsher since if you kill someone, you don't pay a fine to the victim's family, which might help to placate them. Instead, you go to prison or maybe get executed and all the victims out there aren't getting anything. So, of course, they're happy to see you executed and we get uh, harsher and harsher fines and we come to see punishment, not redemption, as the, um, as the way to change behavior. Hmm. So, so to, to, just to wind up, you know, money is this credit-debt relationship. Anybody can issue debt. Minsky says anyone can create money. The problem is to get it accepted. And once someone holds your debt, uh, you have to redeem yourself. And you redeem yourself by accepting it back in payment. And so we see uh, the taxes driving money. The purpose of the tax is to redeem the currency. The sovereign puts you into debt. And the sovereign issues currency, that puts the sovereign into debt. When the taxes are paid, you are out of debt. And the sovereign is also out of debt. So the, the debt cancellation uh, is simultaneous on, for both parties.
So monetary transactions are always quadruple entry. And so we're wiping out an asset and a liability and an asset and liability on both the creditor and the debtor. So that's what money is all about, credits okay. and debits. Okay. All right. Uh, balance sheet uh, consolidation, how the government really spends. I already mentioned that Stephanie researched that. Scott Fulweiler continued. I see that as the institutionalist part of it. Yes. And then Eric Tamoyne uh, also worked on that. So I'm not going to go through this. We've talked about this so much that, uh, you know, we know how the government really spends. (laughs) And it's perfectly consistent with our arguments that you spend first, then collect the taxes, and you can't run out of your own currency. So but that that's pretty much I mean that I see that as like the anchor that grounds MNT. Like if you can't bring it back to that, I guess in addition, sort of stock flow consistent is related to that. That that is really what anchors MNT as I see it. Yep. And it is related to the stock flow, it is related to the sectoral balances. And it is related to the whole logic of Keynesian economics, the paradox of thrift and all of that. The injections must come before the leakages. So it's it's also consistently Keynesian in the true Keynesian hmm. sense. Yeah, it's like what's going to leak unless something is injected? What, what What's there to leak? And so it's so bizarre to us that our good friends, good Keynesians, good post-Keynesians, uh, who completely understand that saving cannot finance investment, that investment has to come first before there can be any saving, get all confused when you switch to the government. You know, it also must be true that government spending has to come first, that's the injection, before taxes can be paid. That's the leakage out of the circular flow. It's exactly the same argument as investment must come before saving, government spending must come before taxes. It's a Keynesian logic. It must be true. Now, things are complicated because I say there are several degrees of separation now in modern capitalist economies between the sovereign that issues the currency and the taxpayer who pays taxes. Because today, sovereigns don't directly spend paper notes, and taxes are not paid with paper notes. So that's what all the study of how does the government really spend had to do, was to make sure that the simplification of saying the the government spends currency into existence and then taxes it back in redemption still holds with modern procedures. And that is what we've done beyond any doubt. And even our critics who say, oh, you guys, you always consolidate the treasury and the central bank, and it's very misleading. All of them admit the final balance sheets are the same, whether you consolidate or don't consolidate. Right. And then the opposite, you say that it's too complicated when you do go into the (laughs) details, but the details are complicated. And reflecting the truth of that is, you know, Reporting on the truth, you know, be, you have a problem with the truth. You don't have a problem with how we're reporting on it. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so I mean, a lot of these other pieces are just sort of general MMT. So I'll just say currency issuer versus currency user, sectoral balance, uh, which is a lot of in your uh, congressional testimony and important with your written testimony, um, that if you want to have a deficit, then you have to decide what other sector is going to suffer because of that decision or have the consequences of that decision. Um, uh, Economic sovereignty, uh, full employment and the job guarantee, of course. And then I think uh, one... You iterate it more explicitly than I've ever seen it before. That the three policy recommendations of MMT, or at least you know, the, I'm pretty sure this is universal. Flexible exchange rates. If you don't have that, then all bets are off. I mean, you have you can do things, but it's going to be much more limited. Um, a job guarantee and ZERP. And I believe that it's true that you agree with the concept of extremely low interest, permanent low interest rates. You don't necessarily agree with zero, but you you personally agree that it should be very low, if not zero. I believe that's a correct statement, right? Yep, and, and I'm I'm happy with the zero overnight uh, rate. There, many people, uh, Warren and Bill, and I think Matt Forstatter, all have argued for eliminating government bonds. That's the one thing where um, I'm ambivalent. I can see a useful purpose in government bonds. Say, you know, we used to have uh, savings bonds when I was a kid. Yeah, you put a quarter every weekend, and after you accumulated eighteen seventy five, you got a twenty five dollar government bond. <laughs> uh, the Congress set the interest rate on that, and uh, it was a safe way to save. I don't think that's a bad thing. So, but you know that has nothing to do with monetary policy. Congress would just set the rate and say that you know only people with incomes under fifty thousand dollars a year are allowed to buy these only certain kinds of institutions. So it's a subsidy, of course. We're going to pay you a positive interest rate uh, and and you, you take no risk whatsoever. I can see a useful purpose for that. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, so all of these agree. Let me just say the one area where the Kansas City approach is different is... Different uh, from what? Different from Bill and Warren. Uh, and that is the emphasis on financial instability, Minsky. Uh, adopting Minsky, uh, uh, seeing Minsky as the single most important father of the Kansas City MMT approach. That's you know, my view. That's interesting. There's there's a quote on Bill's page, and I'm going from memory here. I, it, I'm pretty sure I'm close. He says he says pretty explicitly that Minsky has nothing to do with, and I'm, I believe what he meant. Well, what he says has nothing to do with, like the MMT job guarantee. I, my interpretation of it is that he and Warren came up with their ideas without any knowledge of Minsky. I believe true. that that's what he's saying, and that, I'm I'm sure that's true, <laughs> and, and, and of course it's perfectly fine. Um, so that is true, but also I think it's true to say that they get much less inspiration, even now having read Minsky, they get less inspiration uh, from Minsky in trying to understand how financial markets work, um, the causes of the cycle, the importance of financial fragility, um, and the policies 
that we need to try to reduce financial instability. But for for the Kansas City uh, approach to MMT, we we get our inspiration from Minsky, and we we think that of course the job guarantee is going to help stabilize the economy, but we need to do much more than a job guarantee and much more than the three th- three policies that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which we all agree on. The Kansas City people are much more concerned that financial fragility, financial crises are still going to occur, that we need additional policies to deal with the financial system. So the three policy recommendations, flexible exchange rates, a job guarantee, and ZERP is universal among you and I'll say Bill yes. and Warren. That KC yes. and non-KC, but KC would go farther, would have more recommendations to, to address the Minsky stuff. Is that that, yeah. that correct? Yeah. Okay. So if I may ask one, one last question. Yeah. Um, okay. At what point, all right, actually, I'll, I'll re- say this backwards. In my past, I've been studying MMT for two and a half years. I never heard of it before then. I never filed economics at all before then. Bernie, you know, Bernie... Because of Bernie, um, I have never seen. Uh, basically, there hasn't been a major change in MMT. There hasn't been a criticism which has really landed, and I'm wondering at what point did MMT stabilize? Was there ever a point where there was like a major outside criticism that really? changed it? Or did Warren Mosor come in where it was just 100% solid right then and there? Like, it just seems invulnerable. You know, there's all of these criticisms, but none of them seem to land. It, it just seems to be very solid. At what point did it, like, officially sort of, you know, this is MNT, this came together. And then at that point, were there any major changes made you know, what's the history, I guess, the timeline of that from that point of view? Um, no, none of the criticisms has ever held up. I, I, I say that flatly, never had any influence. <laughs> it, it, it might, you know, we, we learn how to frame things better. We find more historical evidence to support us. Maybe we tighten the exposition. So, you know, the, what Warren laid out, if you go back and, and read PKT January 96, maybe a little bit into February 2, it is there. Absolutely, it's there. What has changed is the details and the framing and the references. That's all that's changed. And it just hit you immediately that this is 100%, it is A to Z, there's nothing left, just like when you saw Warren stuff. Um, no, I wouldn't claim that I was that bright. <laughs> no, War, I think that, that it was all clear in Warren's mind. As I wrote the book and uh, had back and forth with Warren, it became completely clear to me over time. How the pieces, you know, they made sense. That's why I was interested in what he was doing. Each individual piece made sense. But connecting it all together, 
took time. It wasn't clear to me in January of 96 that it was all clear in Warren's mind, you know, because I was seeing these pieces. Uh, was it really, truly a new approach to economics? That wasn't clear to me. But over time, I have become convinced it was clear in Warren's mind. You said that Warren, you know, the Warren saying that uh, bonds were a reserve drain, not a funding yeah. source, and that your experience with John Ramlett convinced you that that was true. What did that branch out to? Like, what what consequences did that have that that changed? You know, oh, that means that this is also, and this is also, like, did that did that just branch out into a spider web of realizations, or was that just a big thing that filled in the final piece? Well, again, it, it, it would take time, so I could say. Yeah, I can do the T accounts, you know, the balance sheets and show that what he's saying is absolutely true. Okay. But what implication does that have? Okay. That takes more time because, uh, you know, we pretty quickly find out that there are rules that the Fed and Treasury have adopted and the Treasury's got to sell bonds first. Well, does that matter then? So maybe what Warren is saying is true as far as the balance sheets go. But the problem is the Treasury has to have deposits in its account at the Fed. You know, so you got to work that out. Okay. Okay. And see how do they do that. And you find out, yeah, well, it's actually not very hard. They figured out how to, out how to do it. So it actually, that requirement has no implication whatsoever. Okay. That makes sense. And then it just takes time. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, we can do way more than we thought we could yeah all right uh thank you so much for your time for talking with me uh, uh it's been insightful i've obviously read a lot of your stuff um thank you so much for sharing it okay bye bye for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
Today is part two of my two-part conversation with one of the original developers of modern money theory, L. Randall Ray. Today we talk briefly about the differences between the words sufficient and necessary and the concept of desired net savings. The heart of our conversation, however, is in two parts. The second is an overview of MMT from the Kansas City point of view, as documented in Dr. Ray's new paper, The Kansas City Approach to Modern Money Theory, a link to which, along with many other resources, can be found in the show notes for both parts one and two. The Kansas City version of MMT differs in one important way from the broader version as agreed upon by all its original developers, and that is the influence and inspiration of Hyman Minsky, and the importance of his concept of financial fragility. Before that, though, the first part is on the true meaning of the word productivity. This was in response to strong criticism I received regarding the job guarantee, and more specifically, to the April 2018 Levy paper called Public Service Employment, A Path to Full Employment, of which Dr. Ray is a co-author. Before I go on, I want to be clear. These are my own words, not Dr. Ray's and not MMT's. It's my best interpretation of what I learned in my preparation for and conversation with Dr. Ray. Although I'm confident I'm much closer than I was before talking with him, I'm not pretending to be an expert or that what I'm about to say is perfect MMT. Like you, I have more to learn. I'm also obviously taking the knowledge of MMT and applying my own progressive values to it. That said, I'd like to take a step back and start with an analogy. Something cannot be removed from a container until something is first put into that container. A leakage from the economy cannot happen until something is first injected into the economy. The only institutions that can make injections are commercial banks and the central government. Savings, therefore, cannot cause bank lending, and taxes cannot finance government spending. Regarding productivity and the job guarantee, in a similar way, jobs can create skills, but skills cannot create jobs. As Dr. Ray explains, washing my own dishes is not considered to be officially productive, but paying someone else to do it is. Why? Because they were paid and I wasn't. In other words, productivity as officially measured is substantially a reflection of not the production itself, but how much workers were paid in exchange for it. Despite consistently increasing output, Wages have remained stagnant since around 1970, nearly half a century. Have workers really been less and less productive, or have they been more and more screwed? Currently, the only thing that's considered officially productive is what makes somebody else richer. Who, by the way, is someone that seems to never be me? Productivity is essentially equated to profit because business owners are essentially the only ones who get to decide who is paid, what they will be paid for, and how much to pay them. Instead of only paying people for making some business owners profit, 
perhaps we can also start paying people for making our world a better place, for helping other people, for cleaning our environment, for holding the hand of the dying, for recording the history of the old, for helping a child with homework or a teacher in the classroom or a youth soccer coach on the field. Wages are not created by productivity. Productivity is created by wages. How do you increase productivity? By paying workers more, by paying them at all. We don't have to measure productivity with maths and models. We don't have to equate productivity with only profit, and we definitely don't have to leave these decisions and definitions only to business owners. We can redefine productivity to whatever we want it to be, and then we can start paying people to do it.